Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on February 27th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... There appears to be what we would call a missing microbiome. And in those individuals with the missing microbiome, they appear to be much higher at risk for uh, these autoimmune and these other um, immune diseases that present early in life. That's Ben Wiegand. He received a doctorate in physical chemistry from Harvard. You may have seen bumper stickers that say, honk if you pass, PCHEM. Wiegand is now the global head of the World Without Disease Accelerator, the WWDA, at Janssen, the pharmaceutical companies of Johnson & Johnson, where he's involved in multiple efforts to prevent disease or identify it in its earliest stages for more effective treatments. We spoke by phone. What is the WWDA? So the WWDA, or we would call the World Without Disease Accelerator, um, our focus is trying to, to um, positively affect the future of healthcare. We realize that today, as people get older, they're living longer, but unfortunately, almost half of people that are 40 years or older have uh, multiple comorbidities, and by 65, 95% of Americans will have two or more comorbidities. So while they're living longer lives, we have what I call passengers along the ride with us, whether it's diabetes or Alzheimer's or hypertension. And so our, our idea and our vision is that we would, you know, if we had our choice of how to live in life, we'd want to live longer, healthier lives, not longer, unhealthier lives. And so the World Without Disease mission is to try to address that. And so to address disease, we want to either prevent, intercept, or cure a disease so that we, could, we can maintain optimum health and live the longest, fullest life possible. So let's get into some actual nuts and bolts on how to do that. I mean, um, you mentioned diabetes as one of those comorbidities, and obviously there's been, uh, we're in the midst of a type 2 diabetes explosion, uh, but I understand that you're doing a lot of type 1 work. Um, while we're thankful for the um, innovation of insulin, which, which was developed in 1922, unfortunately, even with continuous glucose monitoring, uh, the average type 1 diabetic um, has a reduced lifespan of about 10 to 18 years. And I'd like to tell you just a quick story about Kaisi Terry, um, a young girl, five-year-old, full of energy, never was sick a day in her, a day in her life. One Sunday, she goes to church. Um, when she came home that day, she didn't feel well. When she woke up the next morning, she didn't feel the best, so her parents asked her to stay home from school. They thought she probably had the flu. Friday, they realized something was going on. They took her to the emergency room where she was diagnosed with diabetic ketoacidosis, um, type 1 diabetes, with a blood glucose level of over 1,000, which um, obviously is, is, is well out of range. Um, she suffered a couple seizures. And unfortunately, this beautiful, beautiful five-year-old, Kaisi, never saw her sixth birthday. Now, why is that? It's because type 1 diabetes, like a number of different diseases, don't, are, are asymptomatic. And we realized that Kaisi wasn't healthy Saturday night and all of a sudden became sick uh, over, overnight. Rather, there was a lot of underlying disease um, biology and pathophysiology that had been happening over a number of years in her life that went undetected by the normal uh, clinical symptoms that, we would, that one would normally measure. And so what we try to do is to say, how can we um, identify people at risk for a disease? How can we screen them or predict those individuals who are progressing toward disease and then develop interventions that could either prevent or intercept the disease while it's happening? So in the case of uh, a child with type 1 diabetes, what kind of 
uh, testing can go on because, you know, a kid might not see a doctor for six months or a year and the entire condition could manifest between doctor visits. So what kind of things could be in the pipeline to make that kind of monitoring more ongoing? We, we are today working on a sensor um, that would be put in the diaper uh, that could measure you know, glucose spilling from the urine into the diaper. Because these processes don't happen that fast, um, we don't believe that the child would have to wear a diaper every day, but potentially could wear one you know, once a month. We know the major um, uh, seroconversion is between you know, uh, eight months to about 24 months. And so one could easily envision, you know, handing, you know, at-risk children or even in Finland, you know, where one out of every 100 Finns have type 1 diabetes, you could provide that as a part of a, what they would call today their baby box, where they hand to all um, uh, mothers at, uh, at birth, you know, a pack of 15 diapers that could be worn uh, once a month. And if the sensor went off um, that says, look, we're seeing glucose in the, in the you know, uh, abnormal amount of glucose in the urine, you know, they could do additional screening that would be very passive versus uh, what, what would have to be done today with uh, traditional blood samples. Let's talk about the baby box, because I, I know that uh, you've been involved in some of the baby box upgrading work. It's such a fascinating concept to me that we don't have here in the U.S., but it seems like such a simple and yet incredibly effective intervention. Um, the concept of the baby box um, was, was an attempt by the Finnish government, which has been very successful, to help provide healthy behaviors to mom and child during what we would call the first two years of life, which where we believe, and now science is, is, is encouraging us that this is true, that there's a lot of um, health trajectory is set in those early childhood uh, months. And so making sure the child has good eating, good sleeping, good hygiene um, behaviors. And so uh, the Finnish government would provide a box, um, one, just to help make sure they had a, a safe place to sleep, but second, um, to provide solutions in that box to help them in during the first two years of the life has been very um, important in the overall health of the, uh, of, of the Finnish children. What we're now saying is now that we have digital solutions, are there additional diagnostics, diapers with glucose sensors or other things that we could uh, uh, put into that, into that box to help in the health of the children? And we, we um, held what we call a, a quick fire challenge uh, in concert with the Finnish uh, business organization to help I identify um, ideas um, uh, that could be included in that box. And uh, we have some really good ideas. We're now um, transitioning those ideas from concept into, uh, into practice, and we hope to be able to incorporate those into the, into the baby box in the near future. Basically, the mom, before she leaves the hospital, gets a box. The box is, for one thing, it's a crib that the baby can sleep in if the family doesn't have a crib. And it's filled with just some basic items that uh, you, you need to make sure that the baby is well taken care of. And, you know, for the, for the cost, it's so cost effective. I mean, it, you know, it's not free. It, it gets paid for with tax money, but the returns in terms of how much money the baby does not cost is just incredible. No, and I think one of the things you you highlighted, um, Steve, which is important, is that in the finish, being able to set the tr the child on a on a healthy trajectory, not only is providing um, short term benefits, and as you mentioned, in our healthy baby initiative, we we believe, as we've seen over the last number of years, significant rates 
uh, increasing in the rates and prevalence of things like food allergy, um, uh, um, asthma, um, as well as atopic dermatitis, you know, these are autoimmune um, and other immunological conditions. We think that we can help uh, get ahead of the disease. And so not only are we making a difference in the early life of, of these individuals, but again, healthier infants, we believe, uh, will lead to healthier adults um, later in life. We do know the flip side, that individuals that are, are obese when they're young, um, you know, often are the ones that are obese when they're older and then lead to diabetes. So our ability to get ahead of the disease in these places and to be able to give mom, you know, simple solutions that they can integrate into their daily life. Um, because I think as we do our research, and I think from our own experiences, you know, mothers with young children are very open to changing behavior and very open to give their children the best they possibly can. Sometimes as we get a little bit older, we can get distracted by other, other things and it may be harder for us to change behaviors. But we realize at, at a young age, it's, the, it's a very unique and what we call aha moment where we can have very teachable moments to provide these good health behaviors. Everybody's into the microbiome these days. Uh, and the microbiome also comes into play in the Healthy Baby Initiative. No, that's, that's it's, it's correct. And, you know, one of the things that we're learning, and I think the field of the microbiome is, is exploding, and we're learning more and more every, every day about its role, both in terms of immune training, as, as well as potentially even as a diagnostic for, um, for either uh, uh, individuals progressing toward disease, um, as well as for um, as potential as a way to determine treatments, uh, you know, in, in a disease. And you're seeing some of that in the, in, in the immuno-oncology space later on in life. Well, we focus more from an immune, uh, from a healthy baby initiative is twofold. One is what we have seen and what has been observed from a correlative perspective. So today we can't say it's causative, is that individuals that um, um, have uh, a C-section versus a vaginal birth, or, or early babies that babies that have had um, you know usage of antibiotics early in life have a very very different microbiome, a gut microbiome than individuals who um, who have a normal vaginal birth. And what is interesting is there appears to be what we would call a missing microbiome. And in those individuals with the missing microbiome, um, they appear to be much higher at risk for uh, these autoimmune and these other um, immune diseases that present early in life. Um, the interesting thing is that that microbiome, the role of that, that, micro, that bacteria has been really to digest um, the um, human milk oligosaccharides from a mother's breast milk um, into short-chain fatty acids and other uh, metabolites that seem to help train the immune system to, to recognize self from, from non-self. Um, the amazing thing is you can see a large difference that is, uh, that is present um, in, the, in the gut. It's, it's shown as simply as measuring the pH of, of, a, of an indi- a baby's stool. There's a difference of over a log, which is a very, as you know, a very significant difference. And so we're exploring a ways to, you know, to restore the microbiome of those individuals to put them on a healthy trajectory. Uh, so one log, that means one full pH point. That's correct. Okay. Um, this is a fascinating idea, This the digital twins. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, right now with our ability to measure um, so many different elements about an individual, um, you may have recently seen um, last year we announced a partnership with Apple uh, with by using their um, Apple iWatch platform. Uh, we can take periodic measures 
of, of, of heart rate and, um, and ECG to identify people that particularly that may be at, um, at risk for stroke by measuring uh, individuals that are in atrial fibrillation. Um, in addition to that, obviously, there's a number of other markers around activity and gait and, and heart rate availability. And, and so we believe now with all this information supplemented by obviously genomic and other blood biomarkers, um, just as with our cars, we have all these sensors that, uh, that we know when the car comes off the assembly line, uh, we know what is the right tire pressure, oil pressure, um, you know, engine uh, temperature, et cetera, is that we should have, we, we now should be able to uh, create a digital twin of, of individuals and babies when they're born. And, and as we would then take these passive measures, as you said, through diapers or through other um, non-invasive wearables, um, one could get early signs that, you know, you're moving a little bit off course for your health and then sensors could go off. And, and again, just like we try to do with our, in, in the Apple iWatch study, you know, it's not every time something goes off. For us, we want to see, you know, five um, measures within a period of time that says you're in atrial fibrillation. You then would confirm. We then send alert and encourage you to go visit a, a, a doctor for the final diagnosis. One could use the digital twin concept to help uh, individuals maintain and ensure that they're, they're on the right um, trajectory for health. And obviously, if you go back, back in my day, our, my first computer game was, I think we played computer, um, Pong with a with a little stick and the ball went back and forth, um, and now computer games are very different. Um, we see digital twins, you know, today maybe in that early uh, early state, but truly an opportunity to be able to predict future health. We've we've been talking a lot about uh, young people and and babies. Um, there's lung cancer work I understand that you're involved with as well. Now, you know, colon cancer, uh, we we have systems to get early uh, detection on colon cancer. But early stage lung cancer is very hard to uh, determine. It's, it, a lot of times people get a diagnosis by accident because, you know, they broke a rib and they go in for uh, an X-ray and that's how they find it. Otherwise, they don't find, about, uh, find out about lung cancer until it's pretty advanced. So what's, what's in the works to get better early detection for lung cancer and what would early detection mean? You know, seventy-five um, percent of people that are diagnosed with with um, cancer, lung cancer, are late stage, so either stage three or stage four. And and while we have seen some um, improvements in the five-year progression-free survival rate for those individuals, it's still a modest improvement over the last, frankly, forty years. Um, clearly, as we go either to stage one, stage two, and in our we believe now that we can actually um, identify, we, there are desires and reasons to believe we could identify people even earlier in, in, in disease. Um, we think we can make a, a, a bigger difference. Um, if you could just improve, you know, let's say take, uh, you know, 50% of the people identified now in stage one and stage two, you could almost double the five-year survival rate for all lung cancer uh, can, uh, individuals with no new treatments. And obviously, we're making tremendous improvements on the treatments. So what does that mean? What it means is today, the primary screening is, is low-dose CT screening. And so, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times, the images that uh, um, result are inconclusive. Um, and you see nodules um, and that you're not sure are they malignant or benign. And so we're working using artificial intelligence to help us train um, algorithms to be able to predict um, one way or the other. Um, there's some recent technology um, that we're really excited about 
well, this concept of a field of injury that that the lung um, is reflective of the entire airway. And so if we could take um, uh, samples from uh, from the nose or um, uh, bronchus or other more easier to uh, achieve or easier to um, access um, areas, we could get um, understanding of, of early damage in, in life. And, and what we're seeing, and this is published work by Dr. Avi Spira, who is now the head of our uh, lung cancer initiative here at Johnson & Johnson, is that when you see this, you see, um, when you find these early conditions, you often see a very immunocompromised um, individual. And so ability to uh, reactivate the immune system, or, um, we think could be an, an early way, uh, easy way to intercept the disease. In addition to the conditions that we've already discussed, uh, what other diseases, conditions, syndromes do you think you can make a difference with? So I think you know you mentioned one already, which is colorectal cancer, and and you know I think the key thing for us in any of these cases, Steve, is our ability to understand the the, the cause of disease. You know we want to understand um, you know the root cause of the disease, and so our ability to understand disease biology really is critical for us to say why would we go after type one diabetes or lung cancer or some of these healthy baby initiatives or in this case colon cancer because we believe we understand a lot about some of the disease initiating events, um, which would help us, as you said, find these earlier people. So colorectal cancer is one that, that we're working on. We have some um, some early work that's going on on there. Um, we are looking at a wide range of other, you know, immune or oncology conditions that can, uh, again, where we think we have a, a better understanding of disease biology, but at the bottom line is we have to be able to find the people first. Um, and then by understanding the disease biology, we have to provide them solutions. You know, we really want to make sure that we're not just coming up with, you know, identifying people and telling them they're at risk for disease and not having any solution, you know, for them to uh, um, to address their disease. So those are the levers that we're, we're trying to pull. And what we found is that by partnering with, um, I think that's an important piece. Well, we have a team of about 100 here at Janssen. You know, we're working with a global um, set of external innovators, whether they're at academic institutions, small biotechs, these patient advocacy groups. And, uh, you know, I would say at least once a month, people come to us and say, have you thought about this disease? Someone came to us recently and talked to us about multiple sclerosis. We think we know how to find the people. We think we understand the disease biology. And so we're always very open um, to hearing ideas and, and advocates from the outside because we know this is not something that Janssen can do all by ourselves, but rather we really are trying to build this coalition of the willing to be um, ultimately successful to live into this concept of a world without disease. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the old saying, an ounce of prevention, it's really, it's worth about a, a hundred million pounds of cure. I understand that there's, I don't know what it is, but I understand you have a, a personal story that has uh, really informed your enthusiasm for the work. About about four years ago, I can still remember as if it was uh, Sunday morning, uh, I think it was 2.47 in the morning, I, I got a phone call and it was the critical care nurse at Carl Clinic in Urbana, Illinois. It's a town that I, I grew up in about 50 years ago. And, you know, the woman told me, he says, your father's just had a heart attack. And, you know, at 247, you're not really thinking clear in the morning. You're not thinking clearly anyway. But in my mind, I had just seen my father a couple of weeks ago and he was doing great. He was 87 years old, so he wasn't young, but he was always active. He exercised every day. His mind was good. And it was a struggle for me to say, you know, he was healthy just a couple of weeks ago. How could he have just had had a heart attack? And, um, you know, for me, it was like, how could we get ahead of this disease? You know, I jumped in a plane, flew out to Illinois and 
and I, I, I talked to my dad, and I think it was almost the first words out of his mouth after I saw him there in the emergency in the um, in the ICU. He said, "Ben, what could I have done to prevent this?" He was very thankful for the nurses and the doctors. They gave him a couple stents. Um, he's on a, a couple medications. He's he's done really, really, really well. Um, but you know, for him is. How could he have prevented this? That's what he wanted to know. Why did I have to go to go through this? Um, and again, he was in excellent shape, wasn't overweight, low stress. Um, so it wasn't like he had poor lifestyle behaviors. And yet we know this disease had been happening for a long period of time. And it was, and would there be, and that's my mission, is there some way to be able to predict these diseases before they happen so that we don't have to go through these really life-changing events? And I'm thankful, you know, my father's healthy. Unfortunately, a number of people don't have that same have that same outcome. So that's my mission is to really to, to get ahead of the disease so that parents can be with their children and their grandchildren and, and the world can be you know a better place that people don't look back on. I, I think because I do think people will look back on us someday and say, can you wait? Can you imagine they waited till they got a disease before they treated it? Because that's what we're doing today. We're treating disease. We're not getting ahead of it. Right. So your dad is now 91? He is. No, he's absolutely, yeah, he's 91. I actually just spent last weekend with him and his mind is good. You know, he's 91, so he's not running any marathons, but, uh, but I'm thankful that uh, he still has a good life ahead of him. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where we're bringing you the latest news and insights about coronavirus. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 